Reading from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 18. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Well, it seems that identity politics is nothing new, even if the phrase itself wasn't coined until the late 1970s. Uh, whilst it was a community of black feminists in Boston just over 40 years ago who first used these specific words, identity politics, to articulate their struggle for power on the basis of their identity. The intertwining of politics with identity has been taking place for millennia, with countless people being asked to sacrifice aspects of who they are in exchange for inclusion or freedom from oppression. And our reading this morning from the Book of Acts is just such an example from antiquity of a highly charged political debate with identity politics right at the heart of it. This story from Acts 15 is regarded by many scholars as the central narrative of the whole book. It's often referred to as the Council at Jerusalem, and at stake is the very basis and nature of the Christian church. But you have to 
rewinds to the beginning of the Book of Acts to get a sense of the trajectory that Luke, the author, is setting for his readers in this account of the early years of Christianity. So if we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find the risen but not yet ascended Jesus saying to the disciples in Jerusalem, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And there are two key aspects of this which we'll need to pay attention to if we're going to understand what's going on 15 chapters later at the Council of Jerusalem. Firstly, there's the promise of the Holy Spirit. We've not yet got to Pentecost in our own journey through the liturgical year of 2021. We'll come to it later this month on the 23rd of May when we restart weekly worship in our church building. But the thing for us to note today is that here right at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells the disciples that the gift of the Holy Spirit will be decisive for their future mission. The church going forward will be the church that is shaped by the Spirit of Christ. As Jesus departs from them in bodily form, his Spirit will remain with them to guide them. And the second thing I want us to take from this uh, verse in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, is that the geographical trajectory of that Spirit-led church from Jerusalem through all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a kind of widening boundary. The gift of the Spirit is given to the church to drive the church beyond Israel into the Gentile nations of the world. And then this is precisely what we see happening through the first part of the book of Acts. We, we're not looking at all of these stories this year as we're kind of whizzing through parts of Acts. But if, if we'd read uh, through in full up to today's reading, we would have come across these stories of, of the widening of the gospel. We would have met Philip proclaiming Christ in Samaria. We would have, well, we, we heard the story of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch last week. Uh, there's the, the conversion of Saul and his commissioning to preach to the Gentiles. There would have been Simon Peter's vision on the rooftop of Cornelius the centurion's house and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto that Gentile household. We would have come across in chapter 11 the planting of the church among the Gentiles in Antioch and the gift of the Holy Spirit to them. And we would have also met Paul and Barnabas being led by the Holy Spirit to plant churches in the Gentile territories of Syria, Cyprus and Asia Minor. And woven through all of this early missionary activity were these two strands. On the one hand, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and on the other, the expansion of the Church of Christ beyond Israel. And then right in the middle of all of this, there emerged a huge seismic controversy around identity that threatened to tear the church apart or stifle it altogether. The key identities here were those of Jewish versus Gentile. As with any attempt to understand Jewish identity as it is depicted in the Christian scriptures, we need to tread carefully and to be aware that these stories have contributed to a long and horrific tradition of anti-Semitism. We cannot assume that the depiction of first century Judaism that we meet here 
is either complete or entirely accurate. However, neither can we ignore the identity issue at play or we'll never understand the story properly. So with the caveat articulated, let's unpick this a bit. The expression of Judaism we meet in the first century, often called Second Temple Judaism, had taken place, had taken shape rather, um, during the Babylonian exile some six centuries earlier. And it was a form of intertwined religious and ethnic identity, focused around some key symbols and signs that mark the Jews as distinct from the other nations. So Torah keeping, or the observance of the law, was one of those key markers of what it meant to be Jewish in this period, with its distinctive dietary regulations, along with other behavioural expectations. And another was the practice of male circumcision as a visible and indelible sign of belonging to the covenant people of God. In this period, you knew you were Jewish, not because you lived in the land of Israel or because you went to the temple for worship, but primarily because you participated in certain actions. Being a first century Jew was about who you were not where you lived. Of course, there were Jews who lived in Israel, but not everyone who lived in the land was Jewish. And similarly, there were many Jews who lived in Gentile lands, the diaspora as they were known, and they were every bit as Jewish as any Jew who lived in Jerusalem. So the identity markers of Jewish ethnicity and religion including circumcision and dietary laws, ran very deep. If you questioned these, you questioned the very basis, both of a person's relationship with God and their relationship with their community. Factor into this that for a very long time, being Jewish had also meant being an oppressed people. And these markers of identity became even more deep rooted. Just as significant minority identities in our contemporary society, such as black identity or LGBTQ plus identity or feminist identity, and we could name more, just as these have all been forged in contexts of oppression or exclusion. So the Second Temple Jewish identity had been forged in a context of persecution and subjugation. This meant that the public inhabitation of that identity through circumcising your male children and visibly obeying the Torah laws, this was a powerful marker of resistance against domination. To ask a first century Jew to set aside circumcision or Torah would, be, would have been analogous to asking a contemporary member of the LGBTQ plus community to set aside, to hide, to conceal their sexuality or gender, or asking a black person to deny their culture and their ancestry. Both notably things which the Christian church has a history of having done. Therefore, to suggest as Peter and Paul and others started to do, that Gentiles might become part of God's covenant people, but do so without taking on themselves the markers of Jewish identity. 
was heard and felt as a fundamental betrayal. So Peter's baptism of the Roman centurion Cornelius's family, or Paul's invitation to Gentiles to join the church in Antioch, these were deeply problematic actions. And this is the setup for the crisis that leads to the council at Jerusalem. And we cannot underestimate how difficult it was for the Jewish Christians to hear what Peter and Paul were saying. They were claiming that God had been pouring out the Holy Spirit on people who were outside of the existing community of God's people. And they were arguing that if God was blessing the Gentiles with the spirit of Christ, then no further obligation needed to follow in terms of either circumcision or any other demands of Torah. Paul has concluded on the basis of his experience in Antioch and elsewhere that the hallmark of identity for belonging to the people of God is not whether a person embodies the markers of Israel, but whether they share the faith of Israel as it has been embodied in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of the giving of the Holy Spirit as the seal of a person's salvation. And in Romans, he reinterprets circumcision for the follower of Christ as an inward and spiritual act rather than as an outward physical ritual. In other words, throughout Paul's writings and ministry, he consistently argues that the primary identify of identity of the Christian is found in Christ and in the gift of the Spirit of Christ, and not in the keeping of Torah or the practice of circumcision. And so Paul finds himself back in Jerusalem with Simon and James and the other leaders of the early church to try and discern a way forwards here. The Baptist in me would like to claim that this is the first proper argument at a church meeting. Uh, that may be stretching it a bit. It's probably more like an early church council. Anyway, after much discussion, the council at Jerusalem reaches a compromise decision. They will not impose the full demands of Torah or circumcision on Gentile converts, but neither will they say that behaviour doesn't matter. Rather, they identify three areas where Gentiles will be asked to moderate their behaviour, and they name issues here which were so culturally rooted in the Jewish identity of that time that to relax them would have made Jewish Christians unable to share physical space with Gentile Christians. So they end up asking uh, the Gentiles who convert to Christianity um, to abstain from eating food that has been offered to idols, to abstain from eating or drinking blood, and to abstain from fornication. And that's it. It's a masterclass in cross-cultural mission. And it's something that Western colonial missionaries of the last 500 years have had to learn again and again. Pretty much wherever you think you draw your line on identity and behavior, you can find evidence that God is beyond that line at work, pouring out the Holy Spirit on people who are still regarded as unacceptable to the current embodiment of God's people. 
Compromises will sometimes have to be reached in the name of sustaining relationships. But such pragmatic responses, as we see here in, in Acts 15, such pragmatic responses are just that. They are compromises. They are responses to human frailty. They are not divine mandates for human behaviour. The theological principle here is often called by its Latin name, the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And the great missiologist David Bosch describes what this phrase Missio Dei means. He says that mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but is an attribute of God, that God is a missionary God. And Jürgen Moltmann, another of my theological heroes, says that it is not the church that has a mission of salvation to fulfil in the world. It is the mission of the Son and the Spirit through the Father that includes the church. In other words, the task of drawing the world to God is God's task, not ours. The people who are already part of God's family have their part to play, sure. But our task is to prayerfully discern and observe what God is already doing, to pay attention to where God is already pouring out the Holy Spirit beyond the boundaries of the church as it currently defines itself, and to then join in with whatever this new thing is that God is doing in every age and in our age. Mission is therefore not something that we do at all, it is who God is. God is a missionary God. When we make mission about saving individuals, when we focus on personal salvation, we reduce God's activity from the universal to the parochial. We make it all about us. And of course, it isn't about us at all. It's all about God. And God's plan is to love and save and bless the whole world and indeed the whole of creation. This is why I chose that song we had uh, just now that focused on God as the God of the whole of the created order. And this is where I need to out myself once again as a universalist. I think that any understanding of God's activity in the world that restricts the scope of God's saving action to a subset of creation, to a subset of humanity, is a diminishment and a restriction of who God is revealed to be in Jesus Christ. And it's a betrayal of the insights of Peter and Paul, who grasped that God is always to be found at work, beyond whatever barriers we humans might seek to construct around ourselves and our communities of faith. It starts with God and God's invitation to you and me. We are already now the people of faith, but it goes way beyond us. As the Council of Jerusalem had to discern, God's plan for the salvation of the world runs from Jerusalem through all Judea and Samaria and Yes, to the ends of the earth. So when we find ourselves holding on to our traditions for dear life, when we feel our identity as God's people is under threat, when we worry that we're losing control and that our deeply held beliefs are being erased, 
we do well to remember that our task is simply to follow God. The promise that God made to Abraham way back at the very beginning of the Jewish story was that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. This does not involve the erasing of any person or any community's identity. In fact, quite the opposite. As we discover that God is at work in those who are not like us, we also gain a new understanding of how God is at work in us as well. The council at Jerusalem is not the abolition of Jewish identity. It is a glorious recognition that God is bigger than us, bigger than our tribe, bigger than our community of faith, and that God is at work through the spirit of Christ, drawing all people into the eternal loving embrace of God. All we're called to do as God's people, chosen and loved for who we are, is to join in with what God is doing. This is what it means to follow a missionary God. Thank you. Um, let me now open our panel discussion. Um, Dermot, Roseanne and Nigel are joining me for that. And of course, your comments on the chat uh, already starting are very much welcome. So identity according to God, mission and the universality, universalism of God's love, lots of uh, interesting topics. Who is going to be our first contributor? I've always, I, I, I've always wondered why the, the early church and the latter Jewish um, sort of uh, faith never quite got the image of God being so universalist. You know, um, you got in, in Isaiah 54 too, you know, enlarge the place of your tent. With all these things going, um, you know, God is bigger, God is greater, God is more, you know, more than you can ever imagine. Why we, why it took so long to get it? Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed that. Thank you, Simon. Um, I feel like uh, my cup has been refilled this morning. I feel uh, like it's that message that you can make decisions about the direction of the church, but actually it, you need to be reminded that it's about overcoming the divisions of, of othering people and making it very inclusive because the Holy Spirit is spread wide and it's all about God's love and God saving us and God blessing everyone and about your identity being who you are, but actually not letting the limits of, um, of, of, of the community and the culture um, restrict who, who you feel you are and how you express yourself. Um, the, the compromise and the pragmatism to just make everything about God's message and not about the restrictions that people put on each other. Do you know what I mean? I, I enjoyed that, thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, I agree. Simon, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. It was uh, a nourishment from, from my heart and soul. 
in thinking about uh, identities, I was struck by a number of things, how um, as children, and I think as adults, it lingers within us, the need to have a them and us. We need to have this uh, way of including people that are in our tribe and excluding folks that are out with our tribe. Um, and it speaks to a really fragile identity, uh, a fragile sense of who we are, a fragile sense of who God is, I think, where we need to hold on to them and us. And the idea of the Holy Spirit being at work beyond any boundaries set by humankind uh, or those who are in to decide who's acceptable, I, 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 that just rings true. And Again, the challenge to, to, I think for me and for us then is where do we discern the Holy Spirit to be at work in our day and in our age and in our world and our spheres? Where do we see the Holy Spirit yeah, at work or prompting? Um, the, and it also speaks to me of the need to find our identities in really healthy places, in really healthy things. And I think of the psalmist that talks about God desiring truth in the inner parts and and boy, do we need to find truth in the inner parts that, that brings life and sets us free from uh, the, the fear of the other or the fear of ourselves. Um, the idea of, uh, yeah, Simon talked about sacrificing parts of ourselves in order to be acceptable for inclusion. I think many of us can identify with that. Um, the journey in this life, the journey of faith, the journey with God, is to actually realize that that's not what we're being called to do. We're just being welcomed in. So I think the whole thing about identity and challenge and welcome for me has been very, very, yeah, very interesting. I also, I also love the, the clarification that mission is uh, an attribution of God rather than of the church. I think that's rich I think, uh, and liberating and, and also speaks of trusting God uh, as opposed to uh, uh, feeling, feeling that we have to trust our own actions or our own whatever to accomplish this. This is God's work and we get to be part of it and to have fun along the way. I think that's fantastic. Thanks for that uh, contribution. I found it a very rich sermon. Indeed, I have often struggled with this notion of uh, identity and, and, and trying to impose it to others and, and thinking we are the only, the only chosen one. I really do feel, uh, you know, we need to be universalists in our, in our thinking of, you know, God's love for all people, uh, wherever they are and whoever they are, and, and God's, God's love and God's mission, mission uh, message being, being translated to our own to our own action and to our own behavior of, of openness and welcoming of, of all people. I think one of the things that was an enormous challenge to me in a really good way about this was um, a number of years ago, I undertook some further study in order to become a therapist. And uh, one of the therapists that I worked with uh, could move me to tears in her love and compassion for deeply unattractive people, people who would not be welcome in the church. And uh, the sense of Christ-like love and acceptance emanating from her towards the, her clients 
was an enormous challenge to me in a really good way, in a really good way to think that there's something, this person who doesn't particularly identify as a Christian actually is demonstrating the heart and love of Jesus Christ in ways that, uh, that I can only be moved to silence and, and wonder and awe over. And those are, those are great moments. Those are moments when we grow, I think. Thank you, Dermot. Some uh, bits from the from the chat there um, on the question of uh, universalism. The question I often get when I say I'm a universalist is, why could anyone be a Christian? But isn't that missing the point? If you're only on board to get out of hell, you have probably missed uh, the the redeeming message of the wholeness of God. Universalism helps me to see that God wills what she wills and will work together all things together for good. As Christians, we're invited to be part of God's grace enacted in the world. Who wouldn't want to be a part of love poured out to the world? Very. I agree. And on that again, getting your ticket out of hell is a language that many of us, I think, may have been more familiar with perhaps in younger years. But essentially, it's a fear-based encounter and a fear-based uh, expression of religion, whereas we're called to life and to life more abundant. And one of the commonest things that God or his angels or his messengers says to people when they're encounters them is, or he or she encounters them is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So, yeah. A slight uh, sort of thought on this. Um, as Simon was preaching, the thing that came to my head is the uh, Toy Story and uh, Buzz Lightyear's To Infinity and Beyond. Um, you know, the whole the whole concept that this this creature, this character, was so earthbound, mm-hmm. and his hope and his dreams and his that he could fly and he could take off and he could do great things. And I think you know when when you know because that's what his creator had created him for. Yeah, and with our creator, we can do great things to infinity and beyond. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So do I. Let me just uh, pour through the chat uh, uh, once once more. Um, we really need to rediscover a strong theology of incarnation. God did not become flesh simply in order to die a sacrificial death. Christ did not die so that we might not die, but lived so that we might live. Very good. Uh, I'm not going to read them all, but um, good comments on this uh, in this uh, chat including a little side comment on circumcision being a very uh, male um, uh, sign of, uh, of uh, identity. And, uh, you know, w- women only belong to the people of God by the virtue of belonging to a circumcised man. Um, if, if I can just go for a final thought, running through the sermon to uh, and even in Toy Story, and I found myself thinking of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, it's the whole idea of, of legalism versus grace and the fact that legalism cannot understand grace. And we all have an internal legalist. 
and, and, and the challenge, I think, as we grow is to grow out of that identity and come to a deeper appreciation of what grace means for ourselves, for those around about us and for the world. Um, and yeah, that, that God is beyond our boundaries. And, and, and Peter's saying, you know, this is laying a heavy burden on the neck, a heavy yoke on the neck of the Gentiles. It reminds me of Matthew's gospel where he says, woe unto you Pharisees who lay heavy burdens and don't lift a finger to help them. And his, his, his warning is very severe. It would be better for them if they had a millstone around their neck and thrown into the sea. Uh, so again, just this legalism versus grace. We need, yeah, we need to grow in grace. Very good thought, uh, Dermot. Perhaps we might end this little panel discussion uh, with that, unless any of my panelists would want to have another contribution. Thank you very much. Uh, in the chat and uh, to all of you for for your thoughts. Let us pray. We praise you, loving God, that you are there, that, that in you there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all one, for all are one in Christ Jesus. We thank you that as we have just enacted and called to mind that in you and through Jesus, the church is remembered. We praise you for those moments in church history where we have been courageous and done what is right. We acknowledge those times when the church has been the cause of pain and persecution. We ask for forgiveness and strength to be courageous, to follow your love mercy and compassion. We thank you for the mayoral hustings that we had this week and the commitments we received from the candidates. We pray for all the staff in the NHS. We pray for their protection and their appreciation. We remember those we have lost and loved. We remember those who are grieving praying for their peace of mind and heart. We pray for Simon and Dawn, our ministers, as they grapple with the new normal and prepare for the return to the building. We ask that as they work with us to support us, that we might support them and enable their ministry among us. We pray for Liz and we pray for Dawn Simon. We also give thanks for James, Doreen and Solvita. We thank you and pray for our deacons and their families, for their commitment to the church and their wisdom in leadership. We pray for our future and our finances to fund the future for your kingdom's sake. We pray for our nation, our queen, our governments, our opposition. We ask that in the elections this week, you will guide the people to seek justice, mercy and inclusion. We pray for those who lead us to seek after the best for the poor and the dispossessed. We ask for the unity and inclusion to be watchwords for those who govern. We pray for COP26 and, G and the G7 summit, where governments will discuss global warming and its impact on the poor and the vulnerable. We pray for fairness in the world. We pray for firm action and commitment to hold the cause 
of the stranger. We pray for the Black Lives Matter in our communities. Remember the political situations in Myanmar, Russia, Uganda, and China. We pray for the government and the people of India and South Asia caught up in the pandemic, bring comfort to the suffering and the bereaved. We remember the conflicts in Tigray, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, the suffering of the Kurdish peoples and the peoples of Israel and Palestine. Lord, we pray for peace and the end of conflict. Father, help us as we provoke faith in your world this week to remember that if we speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, we are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if we have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and knowledge, and if we have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, we are nothing. Amen. And now for our blessing. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen.